grateful. And this section here of Ezekiel chapter 40 is very important for us to, to consider. But let's pray first. Father, we do ask that you bless this study. And sometimes we can look at this in Christians. And I know I've been even a little guilty myself that there's so much detail. And we're going to read about a lot of cubits and, and details about porches and uh, chambers and uh, gates and this uh, temple that uh, is spoken of here. But Lord, may we have an excitement because this is our future. And I know it excited Ezekiel. So I'm grateful for those who are here tonight. Uh, because sometime when you, in the future, these things will come to pass. And when we are standing at this temple with our Lord, our Messiah, who's going to reign and who's going to have a gate, the east gate that he comes through, that, Lord, that uh, we can be blessed because we studied these things. We, we were wise. Um, these things won't be strange to us. Um, but, Lord, uh, that these are eternal perspectives and truths that are given to us. So help us be attentive to the things that we're going to be looking at now. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned to you, Ezekiel chapter 40 is the last section that we're going to look at, the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. And I just want to review very quickly that as we talk about end times, and again, a lot of people, this is new. Uh, many of you that have been coming to Calvary, that this is you know review for you because we have been teaching on these things for a long time, going through the scriptures. But for many people, they don't understand the tribulation period, the millennium reign, the rapture of the church, the second coming, uh, the chronological order, all those different things. But just to remind you that that, that final seven-year period called the tribulation period, we will see when we go into the book of Daniel this fall on Sunday mornings, that is more formally called Daniel's 70th week, that Jesus Christ will come back in the second coming of Jesus Christ. He will touch down on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives will heave in half, as Zechariah's prophecies tell us, and, and then he will usher in his kingdom for a thousand years. We have seen, if you've been with us in our study, going through the book of Isaiah, going through the book of Jeremiah, now Ezekiel, as we will go through the minor prophets, that there are many verses and whole chapters that speak about the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. And you recall at the beginning of Isaiah, when Isaiah, that began that section of the Bible, which is called uh, the, the prophets, the major prophets, Isaiah through Daniel, then the minor prophets, but Isaiah, as he's ministering before Ezekiel, before Jeremiah, that he begins to have these visions. And he writes in chapter 2 that, that as the Lord, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw, it shall come to pass in the latter days. And right there in that chapter, he begins to speak about the millennium reign, that they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn of war anymore, which is interesting because that verse right there is on the entrance of the United Nations. And it is not man that's going to bring in this time of no wars and laying down of uh, their swords and stuff, uh, no more talk about war. It's going to be Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, that will do that. So it's interesting, the United Nations, which of course um, is a very secular, uh, you, know, uh, you know, man's 
organization to try to bring peace. Peace will not come to this world until the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, comes. Ever since Jesus rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, there has not been one day of peace on this earth. There's been a war somewhere. There's been trials. There's been difficulties. And it's when Jesus comes back that he will establish his kingdom. But Isaiah has many verses and whole chapters on the millennium reign. We know that Jeremiah speaks about that in the new covenant and the restoration of Israel. Uh, we know that uh, Ezekiel has been speaking about it and will speak about it for the next eight chapters. So to say that there is no millennium reign, you have to dismiss hundreds of verses of the Old Testament and whole chapters. And we do know that we have seen very clearly, and I hope that we're beginning to understand that these things will come to pass, literally. Because as we go into chapter 40, there are those who will say, well, this is just symbolic, this temple that is being spoken of that we're going to be looking at. And I believe it is literal. I believe that this is the millennium temple that will be standing during the time of the millennium reign. And we're going to be there at that temple. We're going to see it. And that's where our Lord is going to reign. And it's going to be a glorious, glorious time. So a couple things to think about. That as we go through this again, this is a section where it gets ignored a lot in the church today. Very few Christians have read these chapters or just kind of pass over it because it is very detailed. That's another reason why I believe it's not symbolic. Why, why all the detail? Why this precise measurements and description given to us of this this temple that will be in the millennium reign uh, because I believe that we're going to see it and and you who chose to be here tonight to listen to this that you're going to be blessed in the future um, it isn't going to be like we're going to be there going wow look at this temple I didn't even know this was going to be here that as we are there, we're going to say, yes, I remember the eight steps that were talked about, the gates, and how wide the gates were, almost 90 feet wide, and, and the pillars 90 feet high, and all these other things, and how there's the east gate, that that's going to be the gate of the Messiah, and the north and south gates, and the chambers, and all of this, and the outer courts, and the inner courts. Uh, we're going to be blessed because we were familiar with this, but also keep in mind, Ezekiel here, he's been prophesying all these chapters that we have gone through. And Ezekiel has been prophesying some very heavy things that as he has been addressing the false teachers, the false leaders, their corruption, and, and speaking how the Lord is going to bring judgment to Jerusalem. Matter of fact, the last vision that he had, the date given, concerned the destruction of Jerusalem back in chapter 24, and then the proclamations against those nations that surrounded Ju Judah. And, and so um, there has been um, the, uh, the, the heavy words of Ezekiel that has come. And then in chapter 36 and 37, he begins to talk about, in those chapters, the restoration of Israel. Um, little glimpses of hope, uh, because the Lord never leaves us without any hope. But then all of a sudden, chapter 36, and, and how the land's going to blossom once again. Chapter 37, the vision of the dry bones, the nation becoming alive once again. We've seen that fulfilled in our lifetime. And in chapters 38 and 39 that we covered last week, he sees that, that major battle uh, that will take place. It won't be much of a battle because as those armies, confederation of nations, come against 
you know, Israel in the time that they come back in the latter days. Right there, we see that Lord has a promise that they're going to come back from the nations, inhabit the land and the mountains and those ancient cities once again, and be there and dwell securely in the land at that time, which is now that we're going to see that, that Gog, uh, the leader of Magog, and, and those other uh, nations that speak of Russia and Turkey and Iran are going to invade Israel and the other nations that are mentioned there as well. And God's going to defend them. And then we see that God pours out his spirit at the end of chapter 39 that speaks of the cleanup of the battle. We are living in very exciting times. They are very difficult times, folks. But you and I, we are on the scene for the very first times in 2,000 years that the church is on the scene and Israel is on the scene. And God is preparing the church for what he has for us, and that is that he's going to come and take us home in the rapture of the church, which I believe will take place before Daniel's 70th week or the tribulation period. And then he's going to be focusing once again that final week, uh, seven years, on Israel once again. There will be those who will become believers. But at that time, at the end of the tribulation period, that we know that there will be a national restoration. Even as he talks about there's going to be a physical restoration, we're seeing a partial fulfillment of that. Since 1948, more and more Jews are coming back into the land. They are inhabiting those ancient cities. The land is blossoming. But ultimately, that when Jesus Christ comes back, that will be the ultimate fulfillment of the things that we've been talking about. There will be a national restoration of Israel, even as Paul talked about it in Romans chapter 11. So... All these things are very important for us to understand that blindness in part has come to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And then at that time, Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, all of Israel will be saved. And Jesus Christ, when he comes back in his second coming, we will come back with him. Jude says in his little epistle that's right there before the book of Revelation that behold, he comes with ten thousands of his saints. That's you and me. That's our future, folks. And it's not a Hollywood movie. It's not myths. It's not fables. It's not some new strange, you know, doctrine or vision that somebody came up with. It is declared very clearly in the God's word, and it shall come to pass. John was told in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, write these things down that must come to pass. And they will come to pass. And so in the days in which we are in, we need to be wise and discerning. We'll continue to talk about that you know, concerning the coming of the Lord, but how we can be strong in the Lord and keep faithful to him by believing his word and walking uh, in wisdom, which is not only knowing God's word, but having it worked out in our lives. So it is exciting times. And I really believe that God wants to work. I really believe that uh, he desires uh, to, to use you and to use us as a church to be able to be light and truth and a blessing and bring comfort to others. Because when Paul wrote about the rapture of the church and even that how the day of the Lord, that we are not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, he said, comfort one another with these words. And I believe that a lot of churches and pastors will not talk about the coming of the Lord or the tribulation period because they're afraid that they're going to burden the people. But we are to to do that because it is part of God's word and also to not scare you but prepare you and be wise and discerning in the days in which we're in. Ezekiel here, as we go into chapter 40, I think this is um, 
Ezekiel the high point for him. Because keep in mind that Ezekiel is a priest. And he would have very special interests. When I first taught on Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, which was some 13 years ago, and in going through this again, initially it's like, why all the detail? And, and, and uh, you know, why all of this? But I began to have the Lord minister to me, saying, you know, this is a high point for Ezekiel. He was a priest, and all the, the, the devastation, destruction, and, and judgment that he had been uh, you know, prophesying about that would take place. This is, takes place in chapter 40 in the 25th year of our captivity, he writes, at the beginning of the year. On the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was captured, on the very same day the hand of the Lord was upon me and took me there. So this is years after his last vision, and, and all of a sudden... He has this vision of this glorious temple, the Millennium Temple. Now, some look at this and say, well, it's just symbolic. And I disagree with it. Um, we know that uh, there are four temples that are spoken of in the scriptures. Um, there is Solomon's Temple, of course, that we've been talking about quite a bit on Wednesday nights. They ended up being destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., the second temple, which was called Zerubbabel's temple, because he came back and rebuilt the temple after the 70 years of captivity. Later, it was called Herod's temple because he remodified it to be a magnificent structure uh, at the time of Jesus, destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. There will be a third temple. That's the tribulation temple. We know that Paul speaks of it, that John writes about it in Revelation chapter 11 as he says, measure the temple. There is no temple in Jerusalem right now, but they are preparing for that temple. They're getting all the furnishings ready to go, all the, you know, the training of the priests, the, the garments, uh, the, the, you know, incense and all that that gets burnt. Uh, they are ready for a temple. And matter of fact, that I think that probably what we will see or could see is that remember when Zerubbabel came back to build the second temple, the very first thing they did is they pushed all the rubble aside and they built the altar of incense uh, or the altars where they can do sacrifices, excuse me, and, and they could do the sacrifices and then they would build the temple. They laid the foundation of it. Then the work stopped for a number of years and that's a study for another time, but eventually it would be completed. So they're ready to go. And when we went to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, which speaks about how they're preparing for the future temple, they said something that we see in the scripture. They said, we can do sacrifices without the, the temple actually being built. So that could happen. And as we see that, that these things are beginning to come to pass, as Jesus said, look up and rejoice, your redemption draws near that there will be a third temple. Paul talks about how in the middle of the tribulation period that the Antichrist will then go into that temple, which is called the tribulation temple, and he will set up an image of himself and declare to be God, to be worshipped as God uh, in the temple of God. And, and that tribulation temple will eventually be uh, destroyed when Jesus Christ comes back. Now, what is interesting is that you see the numbers, and again, uh, we won't go into detail, uh, 1,260 days, that's three and a half years, the first half of the tribulation period, the second half of the tribulation period, which is called the Great Tribulation Period, and Daniel is told from the time of the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist goes into 
the rebuilt temple and proclaims himself as God uh, until the consummation of all things is 1290 days. So the Lord coming back, there's a 1290 days. Why the extra 30 days from 1260 is that it could be that we see that he's judging the nations. We'll talk about that in Matthew chapter 25, uh, restoring the nation of Israel. Uh, and it could be during that time that the tribulation temple is going to be taken down. We also know that there's an extra 45 days. Blessed is he who comes to 1,335 days. What is that all about in Daniel chapter 12? It could be that during that time, those 75 days, that, that the kingdom is the transition being set up. Uh, as I said, the judgment of the nations, the restoration of Israel, uh, the tribulation temple being put down, and then this temple being constructed. It is a magnificent, magnificent building uh, that is going to be more grand than uh, the first three temples on the scene. So four temples that the Bible speaks about, um, and two are yet future, which is very fascinating. And there's actually a fifth temple that's been built for 2,000 years, and that's you and me, the church. And Peter would write about in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we're living stones in this holy habitation being fitted together. That Paul uh, would refer to the church as, as God's temple. We are the temple of God. We are a living temple, which is more grand than I believe than any building that could be put up. But during this time, the millennial temple, it'll be glorious. It's going to be huge. Like I said, we're going to read about a lot of cubits here. And it's going to be magnificent. And that is our future. And Ezekiel, I'm sure as he's writing this, he's so encouraged. Because there is going to be hope. There's hope for our nation. And there's going to be restored. And it's going to be glorious when the Messiah comes and he rules and reigns. Uh, from this earth there from Jerusalem and so we should be excited as we go through this and as people also say well this temple is huge it's like a square mile you know and and then we're going to look at the dimensions of it uh, but when Jesus Christ comes back again the topography is going to be different P people say well there's not enough room right now in Jerusalem for it listen things are going to be a lot different when Jesus Christ touches down the Mount of Olives, this is the Mount of Olives, so split in half. There'll be a river from the temple, you know, from Jerusalem all the way to the Dead Sea, and then the topography is going to be changing. Uh, we know that the desert's going to bloom. There'll be actually fishing in the Dead Sea, is what Isaiah declares. And so, you know, God will take care of all that. I don't have a problem with it. So uh, the other thing, too, is others say that this is just symbolic because it speaks of sacrifices, the sacrifices starting up again. And, and so it's symbolic. Um, and we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. We do know that in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, verses 26 and 27, and actually throughout the book of Hebrews, declaring that Jesus is superior, but his sacrifice is, is superior, sufficient um, to take away sin. The animal sacrifices couldn't do that. There had to be a new covenant. The old covenant had to be an old. Uh, and, and Jesus is the one who died for our sins once and for all. The animal sacrifices wasn't enough. It, it only covered sin until Jesus, the Lamb of God, came and died for our sins once and for all. 
So you see that phrase once and for all in the book of Hebrews, but the animal sacrifices were inferior. It was only a covering of sin until Jesus came along. So what are the sacrifices about here? Well, we'll be looking at that as we go through this. We also know that Jeremiah chapter 33, you might recall, and Isaiah chapter 60 gives indications that there will be sacrifices in the millennium reign as well. So Ezekiel giving great details on the temple I believe it's literal. I believe that we are going to see this. This is our future as well. But as we continue in verse 2, the vision of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on it uh, towards the south was something like the structure of a city. So again, the topography changing. There's a very high mountain. We don't know what mountain it is. We note that to the east of where the temple proper is presently, uh, the Temple Mount is what it's called, where Solomon's temple and, and Herod's temple stood, where the Tribulation Temple is going to be built. To the east is the Mount of Olives, and to the south is um, Mount Zion. Uh, Zion is, is a name uh, of Jerusalem, but we don't know what this mountain is as the topography very much it could change. It says a very high mountain. And verse 3 took me there. And behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand. And he stood in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears. And fix your mind on everything I show you. For you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything that you see. So Ezekiel having this vision now uh, of the new temple as a sign of God's presence among his people. Now, as I said, the millennium temple is yet future. It's the fourth temple that's spoken of as far as a building in the scriptures. The third tribulation temple and millennium temple have not been constructed yet. And we will see that this temple will outshine all the other temples as, as you know, glorious and um, and it's going to be in existence for nearly a thousand years. We're at the end of the millennium reign that we know that the heavens and the earth that we now know are going to vanish away. Peter says in a fervent heat. And then he'll create a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. But I want you to notice that what we read here in verse 4. Set your eyes and set your mind on the things that I will show you. And then you can declare this to the house of Israel. And we can make personal application for that. We cannot declare anything to the people that are linked to us in our lives. Parents to your kids or to your family members, uh, to uh, friends, to whoever is linked to you in your life. You cannot declare God's truth if you're not fixing your eyes and mind on the Lord. And may we be ones that we keep our eyes on the Lord. We stay close to the Lord. We keep learning of the Lord, allowing him to speak to us and speak to us these things. As we go through the word of God, what he wants to show us and declare to us is so wonderful to be able to fix our eyes on him. Aren't you blessed? I am. As I think about it more and more, that we can fix our eyes on Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, as Hebrews declares. That we don't have to just set our eyes on the, the world that will just get you down and discourage you and bring defeat to you. 
but we can fix our eyes on Jesus. We can fix our eyes on him because he is our hope. And then in verse 5 of chapter 40, now there was a wall all around the outside of the temple, and the man's hand was a measuring rod six cubits long, each bearing a cubit and a hand breadth, and it measured the width of the wall structure, one rod, and the height, one rod. So there is this individual that he sees. It's, it's uh, obviously an angelic being that is um, there with the measuring rod. And uh, there is a wall all around the temple, this measuring rod that is used to give us the dimensions of the temple and the courts is cubit. Now, most of you, we've gone over that measurement. We're going to read a lot about cubits here as we travel through this. Uh, and, and hopefully that we'll be able to kind of stay with it, get a little bit of, of a vision. You can probably Google, you know, pictures and images on your tablets or smartphone of, of uh, the Ezekiel temple, uh, but uh, a cubit was anywhere from 18 to 21 inches, 24 inches long, uh, around 21 inches. One rod is about 10 and a half feet. So the wall's 10 feet thick and 10 feet high, and the temple will be built um, where it's, it's a large area. And here is the tour of the temple given by this man with the measuring rod. As I said, an angelic, uh, in, uh, you know, being uh, that it is pretty obvious. And then we begin to learn about the eastern gateway of the temple here in verse 6. Then he went into the gateway which faced east. And he went up to its stairs and measured the threshold of the gateway, which was one rod wide. And the other threshold was one rod wide. Each gate chamber was one rod long and one rod wide. Between the gate chambers was a space of five cubits, and the threshold of the gateway by this festival um, of the inside gate was one rod, kind of like the entrance to the gate is a festival. He also measured the festival of the inside gate one rod. Then he measured the festival, verse 9, the gateway eight cubits, and the gate post two cubits, and the festival of the gate was on the inside. And the eastern gateway were three great chambers on one side and three on the other. The three were all the same size. Also the gate posts were the same size on the side and that side. He measured the width of the entrance of the gateway, 10 cubits, and the length of the gate, 13 cubits. There was a space in front of the gate chambers, verse 12 tells us, one cubit on this side and one cubit on that side. The gate chambers were six cubits on this side and six cubits on that side. Then he measured the gateway from the roof of one gate chamber to the roof of the other. The width was 25 cubits as doors faces door. He measured the gate post 60 cubits high. That's about 90 feet or even more, uh, 100 feet high. Uh, these gate posts, that's huge. The court all around the gateway extended to the gate posts. From the front of the entrance of the gate to the front of the festival of the inner gate was 50 cubits. And that's about 75 feet or more. There were beveled windows, frames in the gate chambers, and in the intervening archways of the inside of the gateway all around, and likewise all the festivals. There were windows all around in the inside, and each gate post were palm trees. So this detailed measurement of the festivals, the, 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 the gateway to the temple, uh, the gate that faces east, uh, when you see pictures, we've been showing one on Sunday mornings um, that from the Mount of Olives, you look to the east, you look at the temple you know, mount where the first two temples stood, 
And we know that there's a gate there and it's sealed. We'll talk more about that as we continue through this, this vision. But that's the eastern gate. And here, when the millennium reign, there's going to be this gate that faces east. And, um, and it is the most important gate because it's the gate of Messiah. And we will look at that again more carefully. The gates are huge, about 87, 90 feet wide. Um, and this is one of the gates leading to the outer court. Uh, given to us in detail, its depths, the threshold, the alcoves for the guards, beveled windows, uh, frames in the gate chambers. Verse 17, the outer court is told to us. Then he brought me into the outer court, and there were chambers and a pavement made all around the, the court. Thirty chambers faced the pavement. The pavement was by the side of the gateways, corresponding to the length of the gateways. This was the lower pavement. Then he measured the width of the front of the lower gateway to the front of the inner court exterior, 100 cubits towards the east and towards the north. So in the outer court, a pavement's all around the court, and there's these rooms that is told to us. Um, and as we look at these rooms... Uh, that there are 30 chambers, verse 17, that tells us uh, we don't know what they are for. It doesn't tell us, um, but um, there is this space probably in even numbers along the northeast and south walls. Um, and there's a distance between the gates about 100 cubits or about you know, 175 feet across. Uh, what are the chambers again for? We don't know. Uh, but there's 30 of them that are mentioned here. One of the things that, remember, in our study, you know, when you look at even Jesus' day, that on this south entrance, when Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city, he came down the Mount of Olives, um, and he crossed the Kidron, and many believe that he went into the eastern gate during that time. He could have. Some believe that perhaps he swung around where most of the people were, and the southern gate. And the southern gate, they've excavated it, and they realized going up to the Temple Mount that there was three entrances, and then they actually excavated the, the original steps that led up to that, and that's where Jesus did a lot of his teaching. And it will take you to the outer courtyard. And the outer courtyard was huge courtyards that were there that the pilgrims could come. There was the court of the women that were there that remembered Jesus that he crossed the, the courtyards, across the temple proper. He saw that woman, uh, that widow, putting in two mites, commended her. But then there would be another gate. And at that gate, it would take you into the inner court. And in the inner court, that, that's where the sacrifices was done. And only if you were Jewish, bringing a sacrifice with the help of the priest, could you go into that inner court. And there was a sign there that said, you know, no Gentiles beyond this point. And, and that's where, in Paul, he, that he was accused of taking Gentiles, uh, as you read Acts chapter 20, 21, he was accused of taking Gentiles into uh, the inner court, um, and that's why the Jews rioted against Paul, and he went through that series of trials. So kind of uh, the outer courtroom that is mentioned here, and then the northern gateway spoken of, verse 20, the outer court was also on a gateway facing north, and to measure its length and its width. Its gate chambers, three on this side and three on that side, its gate posts and archways had the same measurements as the first gate, 
Its length was 50 cubits and its width 25 cubits. Its windows and those of archways and also the palm trees. Uh, isn't that going to be nice? There are going to be palm trees, you know, there. We, we all like palm trees and, and all of that. It had the same measurements as the gateway facing east. It was ascended by seven steps and its archway was in front of it. Verse 23. The gate of the inner court was opposite the northern gateway, just as the eastern gateway. And he measured from gateway to gateway 100 cubits. There again, from gateway to gateway, about 175 feet. And in verse 24, the southern gateway, after that, he brought me towards the south. And there was a gateway that was facing south, and he measured it, the gateposts and archways, according to the same measurements. And there were windows in it, and in its archways all around, like those windows, its length was... 50 cubits, and its width 25 cubits. Seven steps led up to it, and its archway was in front of them. And it had palm trees on the gateposts, on one on this side and one on that side. And there was also a gateway on the inner court facing south, and a measure from gateway to gateway towards the south 100 cubits. So as we read these verses, Ezekiel's led from the east gate to the outer court, to the north gate that we looked at in verses 20 through 23, then the south gate, verses 24 through 27, the south gate, three gates um, elevated um, on the the um, uh, um, the south gate, again, uh, excavated, that is, on the uh, second temple, you see that there was three gates that were there and the steps leading up to it. And, and it is fascinating to go to it today, but here's the description that um, as these gates, one to the south, one to the north. We're also going to see that if you came in from the north, you will exit to the south. If you enter from the south, you're going to exit from the north. And you think, what is that all about? Well, um, you know, the east gate is going to be for Messiah, but it isn't because there's COVID, you know, how we are told to go in one gate and or one door, you have to go out the other door. Um, but you know, uh, to me, as I think about that, as you enter into the house of God and then you exit, we should exit differently than when we came in. And, and, and what I mean by that, that every time that we gather, even tonight, as we have this online teaching, that we should be different when it's all over than when we came in. That your prayer should be, Lord, I want to know you more, and I want to love you more. That every time that, that we gather as God's people, we want to leave differently. We want to be changed. We want the Word of God to touch our hearts and to minister to us. Isn't that our desire? To, to know Him, to be changed by Him, to draw closer to Him? So as we come in, may we leave in that way, leave here with more love for him and desire and hunger for him than ever before. And it's glorious. He desires to do that work in us. And then as we go in verse 28, gateways to the inner court, and now we're talking about the inner court. So we're talking about the outer court. Now the gateways to the inner court. Then he brought me to the inner court through the southern gateway, and he measured the southern gateway according to the same measurements. Also, gates chambers, its gateposts, and all its archways were according to the same measurements. There were windows in it, and its archways all around. It was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. And there were archways all around, 25 cubits long and 5 cubits wide. Its archways faced the outer court, palm trees on its gateposts, and going up to it were eight steps. And he brought me into the inner 
court facing east. He measured the gateway according to these same measurements. In verse 33, also his gates chambers, his gateposts and archways were according to the same measurements, and there were windows in it, and, and, and um, the archways all around. It was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. Its archways faced the outer court. The palm trees were on its gates posts, and on the side and that side, and going up to it were eight steps. And then he brought me to the north gateway and measured it according to the same measurements. And also its gates chambers, its gate posts, and its archways, its windows all around, its length was 50 cubits, or that is about 75 feet, and its width 25 cubits. Its gates posts faced the outer court. Palm trees were on the gate posts and the side and on that side, and going up were eight steps. So eight steps going up to these uh, gateways that lead to the inner court is what we see. The gate 60 feet high in stone, um, you know, the measuring of the outer court uh, here, uh, the angel measured the, the inner court. He went from south to the outer court through the south gate to the inner court. And we also know that the gate had same measurements as the other southeast and north. And then we read about the sacrifices, verse 38. There was a chamber in its entrance by the gatepost and the gateway where they washed the burnt offering. The burnt offering, Leviticus chapter 1, remember, was an a, a offering of worship. In the festival, the gateway, were two tables on the side, two tables on that side, on which to, to slay the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, and the trespass offering. At the outer side of the festival, as one goes up to the entrance of the northern gateway, were two tables, and one on the other side of the festival, the other gateway, were two tables. Four tables were on this side and four tables on that side. By the side of the gateway, eight tables on which they slaughtered the sacrifices. There were also four tables of hewn stone for the burnt offerings, one cubit and a half long, one cubit and a uh, half wide, one cubit high, and these they laid the instruments in which they slaughtered the burnt offerings and the sacrifice. Inside were hooks, a hand breadth wide, fastened all around with the flesh of the sacrifices was on the chambers. Now this is where people kind of say, well, why are there sacrifices? You know, on, at the sides of the inner gate, tables were set up for them, four tables on each side, eight tables in all. And, and there were um, the animal sacrifices. Now we see being reinstituted. And it seems like it's out of place. We know in the Old Testament the animal sacrifices were in place until Jesus Christ, the, the Lamb of God, came and was sacrificed for our sins once and for all. The, the Passover Lamb, the perfect Lamb of God. And, and we know that um, there haven't been sacrifices since then. For a short time, that in the tribulation temple, there will be offering and sacrifices, is what Daniel tells us. But there are teachers that say these, these chapters are symbolic because, you know, sacrifices aren't necessary. So why are they mentioned here? Isaiah spoke of sacrifices, as I mentioned. You can look at Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. Matter of fact, I quoted it on Sunday. Even then I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. So in that verse I gave reference to on Sunday, 
that is Jesus as he rebuked the religious leaders and the cleansing of the temple, that he talks about Isaiah prophesying about sacrifices in the millennium reign. So if sacrifices do happen, why? Again, the animal sacrifices were not enough to take away sin. Only Jesus is. But here's an explanation. In the millennium kingdom, remember that it's going to be Israel that's going to be in a place of prominence in God's kingdom. The Levitical sacrifices that you read about in the Old Testament were definitely connected with Israel's worship of God. And the Levitical sacrifices look forward to the time that Messiah would come. And in the millennium, the millennium sacrifices look back to and will be a visible reminder of the work of Jesus on the cross. So there are some similarities but difference between the millennium and, and the Levitical sacrifices. So with that all said, it is believed that the sacrifices are going to be a memorial or object lesson of the supreme sacrifice made by the Lamb of God. The New Testament, the church age, the communion table. We come and, and we take of the bread, we take of the cup. Remember Jesus' body broken for us. He said, do this, eat of my body, do this in remembrance of me. And in the new covenant of my blood that is shed for the forgiveness of sin as we take of the cup. So that's a memorial for what Jesus did. These sacrifices are a memorial um, and it's looking back uh, that uh, we see that it is set up uh, a lesson for, as I said, the supreme sacrifice made by the Lamb of God. So this will end after the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. Um, as we look at the new heaven and the new earth, there's no temple uh, sacrifices that are, are mentioned there at all. Uh, it will be different. So this is during the millennium reign. This is why sacrifices are done. In verse 44, outside the inner gate was the chambers of the singers in the inner court, one facing south at the side of the northern gateway and the other facing north at the side of the southern gateway. Then he said to me, this chamber which faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple and the chamber which faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar these are the sons of Zadok the sons of Levi who come near the Lord to minister to him now it's interesting that we're going to see and again we'll talk more about it as we progress that the sons of Zadok that priestly family is going to have a special place ministering before the Lord um, and minister to him a very special place that they will have as they do that and then Ezekiel enters into the inner court and one, as he measured the court 100 cubits long, verse 47, and 100 cubits wide, four square, the altar in front of the temple. Then he brought me to the festival. The temple measured the doorpost of the festival, five cubits on this side, five on that side, and with the gateway was three cubits on this side and three cubits on that side. And then verse 49, the length of the festival was 20 cubits and width 11. And by the steps which led up to it, there were pillars by the doorposts, one on this side and another on that side. So we're going to end there. But Ezekiel enters into the inner court. He notices two rooms, one on the side of the north gate facing south, one on the south gate facing north. And so the rooms are, are uh, priestly rooms for the priests, serving in the temple, Zadok. Uh, descendants will be ministering during that time. 
We'll go into chapter 41, 42 next time looking at this. But so much here, rich things for us to be looking at. And Father, I do pray that tonight as we cover this one chapter that, Lord, someday we're going to see this, this temple that is constructed. When you come, magnificent, glorious temple. Um, and Lord, to be able to come and, and know that our Messiah... Uh, the one who's going to come and rule and reign from this whole earth is going to reign from there. And Lord, uh, we thank you for the glorious future that we have. And Lord, I know that Ezekiel, as he's looking at this, their future was very bleak at that time. Their future was very bleak, and it seemed like there was no hope for them. But Lord, you are our hope. And Lord, I pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on you, as we talked about tonight, to hear from you, to know our hope is from you, and, Lord, that it would excite us. That as we see the things around us, Ezekiel receiving his vision when they were in the middle of the captivity, and it seemed so hopeless. But yet, as we find ourselves in the middle of trials and difficulties and all of this, that we would always know that you have a message of hope, that we can tuck away of truth in our hearts, knowing that these things will come to pass. I pray that you help everybody as they're maneuvering through the heat this week. That, Lord, I want to pray for those who are working out in the heat, that you would help them. And, Lord, it, it, it's, it's to the point where it can be dangerous. And, Lord, I pray for those who perhaps don't have central area, air, that you would help them. And, Lord, um, th that you would just bring us back here on Sunday um, as we continue to learn of you. Um, as we continue in our study of Matthew. And Lord, when we come in desiring to leave, loving you more, knowing you more than when we came into this place. So Lord, thank you for tonight. Pray bless everyone here in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope to see you on Sunday. God bless you.